Welcome back to another episode of LEO Radio. My name is Jim Harris. I'm Phil Rizzo. And I'm Cindy Glazer. And today we're going to be discussing um, one of the common things that we deal with all of the time, although sometimes we don't actually don't understand that we're dealing with it. It really has to focus on Miranda. And there's a lot of changes going on in Miranda. And a lot of officers, they need to be aware of these specific changes. Now, normally we will do um, a Jay Harris email blast. We'll do a, a case law alert where we're going to update you with those cases so you can read them. We'll explain them. Sometimes we'll do them in a roll call training where we actually do a very short video. But because this topic is so comprehensive and because there's so much detail that goes along with these cases, it was way too comprehensive to do a short roll call video or even just do a, an email blast. So we decided today to have Cindy on and really go over these cases in depth because of the intricacies and because they're so detailed. So Cindy is an attorney. Cindy, why don't you just go ahead, just give us a little bit about your background so everybody can understand. Sure. Um, I retired from the Middlesex County Prosecutor's Office. I served there for 32 years. I was one of the people who originated the zone prosecution program, which had senior prosecutors assigned directly to our police departments providing legal assistance from the start of the case up through grand jury. I was also the legal advisor to our police training center and the county firearms prosecutor. I retired four years ago and was lucky enough to have been recruited by the Woodbridge Police Department. And I served there as their in-house counsel, uh, providing whatever legal assistance and in-house training they require. And then again, was lucky enough to be recruited by Jim to join Jay Harris training. Um, Jim mentioned sending out case updates. That's one of the things I do for him. So please keep an eye out for those newsletters. We promise we won't spam you. You'll get cases that directly impact what you do every day. Absolutely. So for those listening across the country, um, obviously there's multiple Woodbridges and Middlesex counties and Middlesex uh, types of uh, names throughout the, the country. Uh, the cases that we're going to be talking today, um, they are based out of New Jersey, but they do impact everyone across the United States as far as best practices. So although we're these cases that we're discussing today are based out of New Jersey, officers should be cognizant of what we're discussing because of the impact it will have moving forward. Again, we're always looking for best practices. Even though state by state, we may vary very little on what we do, when it comes down to actually what we do in the, on, in the field, it is that best practice for our profession. And if we have that best practice for our profession, we can standardize what we do, limiting the bad case law that may come out out of any areas out of the country. So what and, do we got today, Phil? Uh, we're going to talk about a couple different cases. Um, the first case that we're going to talk about is State versus Sims. Um, this was a New Jersey case, uh, the appellate division case, where they, they had reversed the original um, decision. So, Cindy, you want to give us a little bit about that one? Sure. Uh, Phil, as you said, this is a state Supreme Court case. Oh, sorry about the that. The appellate yes. division. I'm sorry? <laughs> no, I, I had uh, said appellate division. Uh, I, it was a Supreme Court case. Yeah. No, you were right. They reversed the appellate division decision. Um, 
And what happened in Sims, this was a attempted homicide. Defendant was struck with 12 bullets. Uh, I guess our shooter didn't have very good aim. And the issue that was raised in it was when and how do we tell a defendant what he's charged with? Up until the appellate decision in Sims, and for those of you who are out of state, particularly New York, if you're listening from New York, the level of courts in New Jersey are trial, that's where your jury case is, then appellate decision, division, then state Supreme Court. New York, the Court of Appeals is the highest court of the state. So this would be the equivalent of the New York Court of Appeals. So it's the highest court of New Jersey. The appellate division decision in this case said that even if you're considering charging somebody with the case, with specific charges, that they had to be advised of it. Um, and up until the appellate division and decision in Sims, New Jersey said you advise people based on a totality of the circumstances and only after the written charge has been filed. So the appellate division and decision, again, that intermediate court, really kind of threw a his a wrench into the system where it said that even if they were just considering the charge, that police had to advise somebody of what they were charged with. And obviously we all know that very often the investigation isn't completed. You're waiting for lab results, you're waiting for statements to come in, and you are potentially then advising somebody of charges that may never happen. So the appellate division here suppressed the statement because the officers were not advised of what the charges, the, excuse me, the defendant was not advised of the specific charges. The state appealed, arguing that the filing of a charge, which is when a judge approves it and puts their name on it and says, yes, this is legitimate, there's probable cause for it, is when we have to advise you of your specific charges. And the court said the issuance of a criminal complaint and arrest warrant by a judge is an objectively verifiable and distinctive step, a bright line when the forces of the state stand arrayed against the individual. That's the time where the state actually has to say, this is your charge, not simply, this is what we suspect you of, this is what we're thinking of charging you with. All right, so let's just and, recap that real quick. So the bright, mm -hmm. the bright line rule for this is you have to advise the defendant of their charges once the judge signs that, that document, once the judge verifies this is the charge, this is good, probable cause statement, whatever it is. Yes. Just quoting from the case, if you bear with me a moment, if a complaint warrant has been signed or an arrest warrant issued against a suspect whom the law enforcement officers seek to interrogate, the officers must disclose that fact and inform the individual in a simple declaratory statement of the charges filed before interrogation. 
So it's, you know, very simple. We have charged you with fill in the blanks. Um, officers are not required to speculate or question or wonder about something that might happen later. Uh, for example, the defendant in Sims, despite being shot 12 times, survived. So it was not a homicide case. Had the officer speculated our individual was shot 12 times, we suspect he's going to die, they could have misinformed him. So the court, it's rare we get bright line rules. That's a line that New Jersey likes. Usually the courts kind of waffle and bounce around with their advice to us. But in Miranda, we tend to get these very clear rules from the court. And this is a very simple one to follow. I would point out, though, that the court, and we'll talk about it as we go on with the other cases today, is they warned against bad faith conduct, where officers specifically hide information from defendants. They're not asking officers to speculate as to possible charges, but they are warning us that if we know charges are there, we cannot hide them. I do believe that this case is, is going to be helpful in uh, counties where officers are required to get authorization from the prosecutor's office prior to charging. Many times, as, as you said, Cindy, they won't know the exact charges that are coming down until they've uh, screened the case with an AP. So this, I think this case actually clarifies that and, and gives them a little bit I don't, I don't want to say more leniency, but more guidance when it comes to the fact of the questioning that they're going to be, the line of questioning they're going to be doing and what they have to advise them before they start that questioning. Yeah, I think most counties require, certainly in sex crimes cases, bias cases, um, very often in first degree cases, prosecutor approval. And you may be questioning at the scene. So you go with what you know at the time. And until that charge has been approved by a judge, that's the point where you have to tell them the specific charges. And if you have a fresh arrest, like you said, somebody shot 12 times, we can think they're, that they're going to uh, expire. But uh, uh, 12, 12 shots doesn't equal nine lives in this situation. <laughs> So the next case we're going to jump into uh, is going to be State versus Scott Hahn. Okay, Scott Hahn is an appellate division case. Again, that's the intermediate level in New Jersey. So whatever your state calls it. Um, in New York, it would be the Supreme Court Appeals Division. And this is a published case. And if I may just play lawyer for a moment. Appellate division cases can be published and unpublished. Published is binding on law enforcement and other attorneys. Unpublished is advisory. Um, unpublished cases can give you a hint of where the court is going, but not necessarily, not necessarily binding. This is a published case, so it is binding on us. And by the way, these are all cases from 2022. Sims was decided in March 
and Han that we're talking about now was decided August 17th. So just a little plug for Jimmy's newsletter, you will be getting these cases within a week or two of them coming out. Uh, this was a particularly nasty motor vehicle accident on the New Jersey Turnpike uh, up at 14C by the Holland Tunnel and a defendant at a very excessive rate of speed plowed into the victim's car, propelling it into oncoming traffic where it then hit an ambulance. That's never a good day. No, I remember reading about this accident. And the accident actually occurred in 2016, February 2016. So it took four and a half years to get up to, sorry, six and a half years. My math is terrible, isn't it, this morning? <laughs> um, to get up to the appellate division. So when your prosecutor rags on you about your police report, this is why. It can take a very long time to get up to another court. So Cindy, if I could just jump in real quick with something, just for those of, again, for those of you out of the state, when we mention the term prosecutor, um, that that's going to be your district attorney potentially, or, or attorney general, or attorney general, whoever whoever's going to be prosecuting your case. So if you hear us use the term prosecutor, just uh, interject district attorney or attorney general, whatever whatever your state is going to be using. Thank you, Phil. The victim was pronounced dead at the scene and his young daughter, who was a passenger in the car, was pronounced dead en route to the hospital. The day after the crash, the defendant, still hospitalized, waived his Miranda rights and provided a formal statement to two state troopers. At that point, they were investigating it as a car accident. And that's basically what they told him, just quoting, we're currently investigating the motor vehicle crash and how it occurred. Uh, that was a statement from the testimony at court. The defendant at the time was not under arrest because it was an ongoing investigation. So they issued him his Miranda rights. He waffled a little bit. The troopers did a fabulous job on clarifying that issue, whether or not he wanted an attorney. And they advised him they were investigating a motor vehicle crash, a motor vehicle incident. It was not until a day or two later that the car was searched and they found a quantity of GHB in the car. The defendant's blood work then came back where he came up positive for the intoxicants. And his statement was allowed into court uh, at the trial, even though he was told it was a motor vehicle incident. He was ultimately charged with, if I recall correctly, a death by auto. This is an example of the officers went with what they knew at the time. At the time, they were investigating a motor vehicle crash. It wasn't until the car was searched and the blood work came back that they realized he was under the influence and charged him criminally. And the court said that was fine. They did not purposely misrepresent anything. They went with the facts they had at the time and his statement was allowed in at the trial. And I yeah, apologize, it's first degree aggravated manslaughter, vehicular homicide, possession of GHB. 
Yeah, that's that's he was he was served with a, a litany of charges, and uh, I, they they weren't lying at the time. They you know they wouldn't have charged him with all of that had it just been a uh, you know a simple motor vehicle crash, or, or they they may not have charged him depending on what the investigation yielded. But uh, certainly, I think if if those narcotics were not involved in the crash, there may have been some motor vehicle charges. But I don't know that the, the, that rises to the level of criminal culpability. No, it's. Um... It was a mo had there not been all that other evidence, it would have been a motor vehicle crash with horrific consequences, but not criminal consequences. And I think it's a really good example of what Sims said of you advise them once the criminal charge is signed, but don't misrepresent. That was one of the arguments the defendant made in Sims is if you only have to tell me when you criminally charge me, then the cops are going to hide things. And the court said, well, we'll deal with it if they hide things. And here they didn't hide things. They told them exactly what they knew at the time. That's a that's a great job by the, the state police in this one, you know, of doing what they needed to do as far as telling them exactly what they were investigating at the time. Uh, I, I think this is really spot on with, with what Sims, the, the, the court's, said not only by the letter, but but really by the spirit as well. Yes, absolutely. And if we were talking, if we were expanding today's podcast, uh, which we might at some other time about clarifying right to an attorney, I would just put out to those two troopers, um, they did a fabulous job with reading him Miranda and clarifying all of those issues to make sure that that statement came in. Again, gr great job. It's always it's always nice to hear it when we do it right. Um, <laughs> always nice. We're going to jump next to uh, State of New Jersey versus uh, Naheem Dollison. Okay, this is an unpublished case from September 27th of this year. Again, unpublished is advisory only. Um, I'm really not sure how the appellate division chooses to publish versus not publish, but they do. Defendant here was charged with a possession of a stolen car shortly after a victim reported that her key fob was taken. At the time, they just thought it was possession of a stolen motor vehicle until the defendant in his statement admitted carjacking the victim. When the victim reported her key fob was taken, she couldn't identify the defendant. The defendant was stopped with the key fob. They had probable cause to believe that he was in the car, he had the fob. It was a theft, but it was only during his statement that he admitted he was the one who carjacked her. And it went, the court went back and quoted Sims and said, Officers need not speculate about additional charges that may later be brought. And they probably wouldn't have brought additional charges except this defendant confessed to a carjacking. It's not and often, again, but... I'm sorry? It's not often, but sometimes they make it easy for us. Every once in a while, yes. So again, an example of the officers went with what they had at the time, which was car theft which then turned into a carjacking. 
again, they actually, it, it looks like in the, the body of the case, they quoted Sims again, saying that these officers had done it right. And um, that, that's a great thing when, when you're talking about, you know, just a theft of a key fob versus a first degree robbery. Uh, significantly different charges, significantly different convictions and, and penalties that come about with that. Yeah, it's actually, as I said earlier, Miranda is one of those few topics where courts give us really clear guidelines. It's such an important issue that the courts give us very bright line rules and very clear guidance on what we can and cannot do. Exactly. Uh, there was another case you wanted to discuss today, Cindy? Yes, State v. Adrian Herrera, which came out on October 20th. Again, an unpublished case, so advisory, not binding. But this is the flip side of the last two decisions. Here, the court found that the officers purposely misrepresented the charges that the defendant was facing. Um, this was a strict liability narcotics staff uh, for those out of state. So if we can prove who sold the drugs to the person who overdosed and passed, it's a strict liability death investigation. So here we have a victim who passed after using narcotics. The case from the start was called in as a death investigation. The officers got the individual who provided the victim with the drugs to get more of those drugs marked the same way with an eye towards going up the chain. Um, and from the beginning, Everything the officers said during Miranda and said during the investigation was purposely leading that defendant to believe it was simply a narcotics distribution case. Despite the fact that right from the beginning, it was called in as a death investigation. So this goes to that argument in Sims where the defendant said, well, if you only require the cops to tell me once I'm charged, you're inviting, you're encouraging police officers to either delay charging or hide charges. Here also, the detective involved, and I'm just quoting from the cross-examination, detective agreed it was reasonable for the defendant to believe she was being arrested only for attempting to sell Xanax. The detective conceded that from the start of the interview, defendant was led to believe the detectives were engaging in a narcotics investigation. He stated that he chose those words intentionally, so the defendant would not be aware it was a death investigation. And the court found that the defendant was deliberately kept in the dark about her true status. So even though the courts only require us to tell people once they are charged, you can't lie. You can't purposely hide something. And the courts will consider acts of what they call intentional wrongdoing by law enforcement 
including an intentional failure to file charges in order to keep an arrestee in suspect status. Courts have given us you know, a good bit of leeway here. Got to be careful not to lie to defendants. It seems that uh, the Sims case really is just talking almost about what they want to establish is almost like a fundamental fairness when it comes to uh, people giving statements of that we want to give somebody an opportunity to give a statement, but you know we want also want them to know what our mindset is as well. That that's what it seems like to me that it's really just looking at at uh, almost like a fundamental fair standard. It is um, with a little bit more than that. They they gave two rules, I guess. The first one is you only have to tell people once they're actually charged because that's where some independent arbiter, a judge, has signed it and said, yes, this is a legitimate complaint. There's probable cause for this. And that if you're questioning before that, that's where they're looking at, as you say, the fundamental fairness. Right. Um, basically, you can't lie. You cannot tell somebody that they're not being charged with something when you know full well that they are being charged with it. Yeah, it's still in the process. The, dis the difference between the guy shot 12 times who had not yet passed and the person who died of a drug overdose and you're specifically looking to charge somebody with that. So, so going back to the, the Sims case, did, did, do you recall, did they tell them, did they tell the defendant he was shot 12 times or did they just say we're investigating a shooting? I guess, how, how many facts do you think we would be required to disclose to a defendant? Well, and since they told him he was being investigated for an aggravated assault, uh, which is obviously what it ended up being, um, because the person did not expire. It was a criminal attempt homicide and aggravated assault. But where Sims drew the line was where an officer intentionally withholds information as opposed to an ongoing investigation where information may change. Okay, so that makes sense. And the fact of they, they're not really tying our hands behind our back they're they're simply saying that we need to make sure that number one you tell them what what they they're being investigated for at the time and again that can always change uh, situations evolve and number two you just can't fundamentally lie about it if if you're doing one thing you can't tell them you're investigating a, a you know a theft but you're actually investigating a murder Correct. They refer to bad faith conduct on the part of the police officer. And that's really a pretty high standard to meet. Or pretty right. low standard to meet, I guess. <laughs> well, again, you know, you'd have to look at the fact of, and again, this will be a case-by-case -case basis, but let, let's look at the Sims case. It was not unreasonable for them to say, hey, we're investigating an aggravated assault, even though the individual was shot 12 times because he survived. There are other people who uh, get shot once, and it just happens to be a fatal shot. So I, I think that as long as you're you're operating here in good faith, and the best the best practice here 
the the takeaway of what we're we're talking about here is as long as you uh, advise them of what you know at the time and you're you're not lying to them, uh, you don't have to speculate. You you really just talk about what what you know at the time and you give them the 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 what you're investigating at the time. If if there's the potential of a death by auto, but you're investigating a motor vehicle crash and you, you wouldn't have those those grounds to investigate, then you're you're going so far as to say you're investigating a motor vehicle crash like the, the state police did. Exactly. I, I think that's a you know the that's the great thing about a bright line rule. It actually uh, makes it pretty simple where it, it it puts that line in the sand and, and you know you can't cross that. Yeah, and it's rare. It's rare that the courts give us that kind of really clear guidance. Be honest with what you have at the time. Don't out and out lie to a defendant. You're going to be fine. Miranda is one of those things that TV has made it so that it's so... Uh, people think it's a very simplistic matter. Uh, you know, I know when, when I first started it, everybody figured they knew Miranda because you knew the, the statement of, you have the right to remain silent, and there's so much more to Miranda th than just knowing the rights, uh, triggering custody, and and so on and so forth, and when to read Miranda. It, it's a very complex issue. It's a very complex issue. Absolutely, and I read every case that's decided in New Jersey, the Third Circuit, and the U.S. Supreme Court, and there are more Miranda cases than any other issue. And sometimes it turns on a single word. Miranda is 57 words. Sometimes if you get one wrong, if it's the right one wrong, you lose everything. And that is why training and education is so important when it comes to our law enforcement officers. Uh, don't assume that just because you've been an officer for 20 plus years that you're you're 100% solid on these rules and, and regulations when it comes to uh, such topics as Miranda and arrest, search, and seizure. These are uh, I, I don't want like to use the term living, breathing documents, but they're living and breathing, and they they're constantly evolving. Um, so you you need to stay abreast of these situations. That's exactly true. And I understand how difficult it is for law enforcement officers to stay abreast. I probably spend 20, 25 hours a week just reading case law and probably discard 95% of them as not being relevant to what police officers do. And that's why we get these email blasts out to everybody. I can I probably read 15 cases a day and we might send out one or two a week that relate directly to what you do. It's really hard because things change moment by moment and sometimes it's a bellwether change that changes everything we've been doing for the last 20 years. And the, the big thing is generally when it comes to a, a change from from case law, you don't have time to get training on it. You don't have time to get advisement on it. It's once that change happens, you're held to that standard immediately. So that's why we try to get these blasts out within a day or two so that you can 
have that information and have that training to know that, okay, we have to change course a little bit or, okay, we're doing it right. And you have that support saying, okay, this, this, this Sims case backs up exactly what we were doing for the last five years. Let's keep doing it that way. Exactly. All right. Anything else you'd like to add here, Cindy? Uh, nope. I think that for the topic we're looking at on Miranda today, this covers it. The bottom line is be honest with what you have. And as long as you're not acting, in, you are not acting in bad faith, you're going to be fine. Yeah, I think the, the takeaway today is, you know, follow that golden rule of be honest with what you have and uh, straightforward with what you have. And, and you're going to be fine on the Miranda front. And that'll bring us to the end of another episode of LEO Radio. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us. If you have any uh, particular items you want us to discuss, please reach out to us at policetraining at verizon.net, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the J. Harris Academy of Police Training. J. Harris Academy of Police Training is based in New Jersey and provides law enforcement training services nationwide for promotional examinations, use of force, supervisory development, and other key areas within law enforcement. This podcast is utilized to discuss key topics occurring within the profession. The opinions and information provided is for entertainment purposes only. In an effort to provide this, we often purposely discuss opposite views and opinions to spark conversation and develop discussion points. The contents of the show and show notes are all copyrighted. All blog posts, podcasts, and show notes that are distributed to the public for free can be redistributed via hard copy or electronic copy for free only if the J. Harris Academy of Police Training is included as the acknowledged author within the actual media that is redistributed. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall the J. Harris Academy of Police Training, any guests, contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of the company be responsible for damages arising from the use of the information provided.